Good morning. It is way past time to get started. The preacher was long-winded today. I tell you what, he's got a problem, I think. But um, felt like I needed to go long on that subject. But I am going to try to wrap up today so that I can get back, uh, so that Ben can get back to his class. I was intending to be in here first two weeks, and it turned into three. I think we're in four. But Ben asked me if I would go ahead and cover this section dealing with deacons. Of course, I preached about deacons just a few weeks ago when we installed new deacons. But uh, we're going to go through this uh, fairly quickly today. And uh, we don't have a whole lot of time here. So uh, let's just jump ahead past some of this. And let's look at the qualifications of a deacon. Number one, a deacon must be reverent. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. The King James Version says he must be grave. The ESV says he must be dignified. And this is so important. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a sense of humor. It means that he is serious about serious things. It means he loves the church. It means he loves the souls of men. And when it comes to serious things, he's serious. He's not going to be irreverent about things that really matter. You know, Matthew 13, verse 45 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man who's seeking goodly pearls, who when he found a pearl of great price, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. That is, here's a man who recognized the value of this pearl, and he got serious about it. It was the most important thing to him. And a man who's qualified to be a deacon, he's going to be that way about the church. He's not lighthearted. His faithfulness to the church is first. All right? Secondly, he is not double-tongued. What would you take that to mean? Okay, certainly he's going to be stable in all his ways. If you have, have you ever heard the uh, phrase... Uh, he's forked tongue. He's got a forked tongue. What would we mean by that if we said he has a forked tongue? Yeah, he tells two different things. That is the idea of double-tongued. A man who is uh, literally this phrase that says double-tongued means to tell the same story in two different ways. It means he's a liar. A man who is qualified to be a deacon has to be a man who's a straight shooter. He's always going to tell you the truth, and you can count on that. He is not double-tongued. Here's the third one. Not given to much wine. Now, I could spend a long time on this, and I've got a lot of notes, but I don't know how much time I've got, but we'll give it a go. Sometimes people look at this, and it says that he's not to be given to much wine, but in verse number 3, you might remember that when we talked about an elder, it said an elder can't drink any wine. And so they conclude from that that an elder can't drink wine, period, but a deacon, he could be a social drinker. A deacon can drink some wine as long as he doesn't overdo it. So if you're an elder, no wine, anybody else, that eh, doesn't apply. I would ask this question. Why would it be the case that an elder couldn't drink any wine, but other people could drink wine. What would be the rationale behind that? 
Why? Why could an elder, assuming this is true, it's not, but assuming it's true, why would the Bible say other people can drink wine, but if you're an elder, you can't drink wine? Why would they say an elder can't drink wine? Okay, because he's in, in a leadership position, what difference would that make? Why would he not want a leader to drink wine? Okay, he would want a leader to be of sound mind. So does that mean other Christians don't have to be of sound mind? That would kind of be the implication, wouldn't it? You say, well, he's, he's an example. So other Christians don't have to be an example? No matter what reason you give for this, it's something that applies to other Christians. The idea that elders can't drink wine but other Christians can is nonsense. It's also interesting in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3, it says an elder can't be a brawler or a striker. Does that mean that if you're not an elder, you can be a brawler or a striker? If we're going to follow this line of reasoning, why don't we just go down that path? An elder can't drink wine, but if you're not an elder, you can. An elder can't be a brawler or a striker, but if you're just a regular Christian and you want to have a fist fight with somebody, that's all right as long as you're not an elder. Is that the implication of this? That's nonsense. You know, Ephesians 6 and verse 1 says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. What's that mean about mothers? If you're a mother, have at it. <laughs> if, if you're a mother and you want to infuriate those children, you can because you're not a father. You see, if we take a prohibition that's given to one person and say since it was given to them but not specified to another, that means they're allowed, that's just nonsense reasoning. He has singled out the father and said this because he's the head of the home. He singled out an elder because they are the leaders. He's emphasizing it's of special importance to you. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to other people. Now, some people take this phrase, not given to wine for an elder and not given to much wine for a deacon, and they say, well, that only refers to being addicted to alcohol. It doesn't mean you can't drink in general. It just means you can't be addicted to it. So if you're given to wine, that would mean that you're addicted to it. And if you're given to much wine, that means you are addicted to it. If that were true, that would mean Christians could drink as much as they want to as long as they don't become addicted, right? Wouldn't that be the implication of that? You can get drunk as long as you don't become addicted to it. Well, that's nonsense too. When you start analyzing these arguments that people make, you can see how absolutely crazy it is. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3, where it says an elder is not to be given to wine, this is from two Greek words. One is the word para, which means beside, and the other is the word oinos, which means wine. Literally, if you want to translate this, these two Greek words literally, it says an elder is not to be one who is beside the wine. Now, um, people like Thayer's and some of the Greek uh, lex, uh, lexicons, they have interpreted that to mean He's beside the wine long enough to get drunk, so he's not supposed to be given to wine. That's not actually what it says. It actually says an elder is not to be one who is beside wine. Now, what would be the implication of that? 
Okay. He's got to stay away from the wine. He can't have wine at all. Now, it's also interesting. I have heard people say this. They will say, well, there's not actually any verses that uh, forbid drinking. There's only verses that forbid what? Drunkenness. You ever heard somebody say that? Well, Don, Christians can drink because, and I know I don't want to turn this into a, a class about alcohol, but people get hung up on this verse about deacons and they start defending alcohol. They'll say there are not any verses that forbid drinking, only verses that forbid drunkenness. Let me suggest just a couple to you here very quickly. This is Proverbs 23, 29 through 31. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has babbling? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of his eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go and seek mixed wine. Now somebody might say, well, Don, that just forbids those who tarry long at the wine. That is those who drink a lot of alcohol. That's what's being forbidden. That's a drunkard. But look at the next phrase. Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth color in its cup, when it moveth itself aright. What does he mean when he forbids us to look upon the wine when it is red? The idea is not actually you can't look at wine. The idea is to look on it with desire. He's not saying, hey, don't you ever look at wine. Somebody's got wine, you better avert your eyes, don't look at it. The implication is you're looking at it and desiring it. This passage is saying it's wrong even to look at it and desire it. You're looking at the wine thinking, oh, I want to get some of that. What's the problem there? People say there's not a verse that says you can't drink at all. Here's the verse that says you're not even to look at it and, and lust after it and want it and desire it. Here's another passage. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. This is written to Christians. He says, for we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, it's interesting because he uses three phrases that all apply to drinking. Notice that he talks about drinking parties. In, in our past life, before we became Christians, we involved our, ourselves in drinking parties. This particular Greek word, let me give you the definition from Thayer's Greek lexicon. The drinking bout, the banquet, the symposium. Not, necess not uh, of necessity excessive, but giving opportunity for excess. That is, don't go to places where people are drinking a lot of alcohol, not even to say that you're doing it, that you're drinking it, but there's opportunity for it. Christians are not supposed to go to places where the purpose is for drinking and you have an opportunity. So what we have is don't even look and don't even sit and look and want it. Don't go to places where you've got an opportunity to do this, where the purpose is people gather to drink. Then you've got the phrase drunkenness. The King James, the old King James, instead of saying drunkenness, says excess of wine. Now, sometimes people who argue for social drinking have taken that phrase, excess of wine, and they say, well, see, that teaches moderation, as long as it's not in excess. 
It's interesting in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, the very next verse, he also says, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Now, in verse 3, he mentions excess of wine. The next verse, he mentions excess of riot. So let's apply their reasoning. If excess of wine means that you can engage in wine as long as it's not excessive, what does excess of riot mean? Yeah, you can be riotous as long as it's not excessive. Just, just make sure your riots, you keep them to a minimum. It's a dull roar riot, and it's okay with the Lord if you do that. You see the fallacy in this type of reasoning? When the Lord forbids something serious, that doesn't, or when he forbids you doing something in an extreme degree, that doesn't mean it's okay to do it in moderation. Um, let me get back on to the text here. A second thing that's very important to notice when he talks about elders and deacons, in verse 2 for elders and verse 11 for deacons, he says that they must be sober. The New King James uses the word temperate. The Greek word here is sophron. This is the definition of sophron, to be free from the influence of intoxicants. How can a deacon have a mindset that is free from the influence of intoxicants, but at the same time be a social drinker? You see, you've got a problem. If the Bible is teaching elders can't have any wine, but a deacon can have some as long as it's not too much, now you've got to deal with all the passages that say you can't drink at all, but a deacon can drink. See, that's a contradiction. It doesn't make any sense. And that a deacon, a deacon has to have a mind that's free from intoxicants, but he can drink some intoxicants. You run into all kinds of contradictions when you get into this type of reasoning. I would also ask this question. If the Bible said you can't be addicted to heroin, would that mean it's okay to take it recreationally as long as you're not addicted to, addicted to it? That's the reasoning that people go through. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Be not overmuch wicked. That's what the King James says. Be not overmuch wicked. Does that mean it's okay to be a little bit wicked? The passage says, don't be a lot wicked. That's the way we would say it today. Don't engage in a lot of wickedness. So the implication is you can engage in a little bit of wickedness. Of course not. That's the way people interpret it, though. James 1.21 says, Lay as oh man, lay aside all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness. So can you engage in wickedness as long as it's not overflowing? No. All right. Let's uh, let me get ahead here for the sake of five minutes. A deacon can't be greedy of money. Now we had a similar thing written about elders. The idea is a deacon can't be a covetous man. A deacon is not one who is so consumed with his business that he can't focus on things of God. A deacon is one who is honest with money. He has integrity when it comes to money. He wouldn't cheat a man even if he had the chance to do so. It doesn't matter how much money he would make. He wouldn't do it. Next, he is holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. What this means is he is a man who has a, his, his conscience is clear. He holds to what the gospel says. He's not a compromiser of his convictions. 
He's got a pure conscience because he lives right in the face of God. Here is the next one. He must first be tested. Now, it's interesting, verse 6 says about an elder, he can't be a novice. The word novice means newly planted. He can't be a new convert, in other words. And then it says about a deacon, he must first be tested. The word means he must be proved. In fact, it says, and let these also be proved. The idea is, just as an elder has had to be a Christian for a while before he can be an elder, a deacon also has to be a Christian long enough that he's been put to the test, he's been proved so that you know it. What does that mean? You know, anybody can fool people for a short amount of time. But after a long time, you start to see people's character. Next, a deacon must be found blameless. This same word applies to elders. We talked about that at some length. Obviously, it doesn't mean that he's sinlessly perfect, but there's nothing that you can lay hold of and say, this, this, this man's just dishonest. This man has foul humor. This man is a womanizer. This man forsakes the assembly. There's nothing that you can lay hold of. The man is of a sterling character. Next, their wives must also be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. It's interesting because this is not stated about the wives of elders. Why do you suppose that is? I don't know. Maybe it's because it says that if a man's going to be an elder, he has to rule his house well, having his children in all subjection. Titus chapter 1 says he has to have faithful children. Maybe these things imply that he's going to have a faithful wife. On the other hand, a deacon doesn't have to have the same qualifications of an elder. He doesn't have to have Christian children, but his wife still has to live up to a certain standard. Why does she have to be faithful? Look at the next verse. Verse 12 says, For they who have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. The American standard says a good standing. What it has to do with is his influence in the community. The point is, if you put a man into the office of a deacon, he's immediately recognized in the community as a representative of the church in a way that's beyond that of a, a regular Christian. And if his wife isn't faithful, then his reputation is going to be destroyed. If his wife is a gossip and a slanderer and she goes around yah, yah, yah about people all the time, then that's going to hurt him as a deacon and it's going to hurt the church. So she has to have a good reputation. Next, he has to be the husband of one wife. That means he has to be a man. He has to be married. He can't be a polygamist. He has to have only one wife. This would not preclude a man whose wife has died and he has remarried. It likewise would not preclude a man who has a scriptural divorce. If God released him from that marriage and he has married again in a scriptural way, then he has only one wife. And then he must be ruling his children and his house well. There is a distinction between elders and deacons. Elders must rule their house well, according to verse 4, and it's a measure of how they will rule the church. Verse 5, deacons don't rule the church. Titus chapter 1 says an elder must have faithful children. We talked about the fact that that, must, uh, that means Christians. They must have at least one Christian child. That's not said about deacons. And so a deacon could have younger children. They haven't reached the age of accountability yet, so they're not 
uh, Christians. That would not prevent one from being a deacon, but still he has to rule his own house well. So if he's got children and they're belligerent, they're always in trouble, people are always pointing to those kids saying, man, he's got bad kids. He's not qualified to be a deacon. All right, I did it. That's all the qualifications of a deacon, and uh, Ben will pick up again next week. Thanks.